This podcast is brought to you by Whites Ferry Road Church. For more information, please visit WFRChurch.org. We'll start with a prayer, and then we'll, we'll continue into our discussion on the Holy Spirit. Father God, we just come to you in prayer tonight. We are, are so thankful, Father, that we can come into your presence, God, and just talk to you. Um, you are so holy and, and majestic, Father, and we are, are not. And uh, we are sinful, we are broken, and we are not worthy of you. Father, we are so gr- grateful and thankful for your grace that you extend to us, Father, and that you clean us up, God, and you, you make us presentable and whole again, Father. And I do pray tonight that your, your Holy Spirit will speak through me, Father, and that we will gain a better understanding of, of, of who you are as a triune God and more specifically who the Holy Spirit is, Father, and that we can apply that to our lives and allow, allow him to work in our hearts, God, and to cultivate... Um, the rocky soul that makes up who we are, Father, and plant something. And uh, I pray, God, that we will allow him to water it and to cultivate that crop, Lord, and, and that we will be able to experience the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Father. We love you, and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> I've been getting over a cold uh, the last three weeks. January 15th, I got sick. And I don't know if it's the, the residuals of it, but man, my lungs have just been under attack. So if I start coughing, I'm not contagious anymore. I don't know how I know that I'm not contagious, but I just feel like I'm not contagious. So you don't have anything to worry about. No fever. And, I, and, and more importantly, I feel like I'm not contagious, so you guys have nothing to worry about. Okay? If you trust my feelings. That's what, that's what matters. If there's one thing you've learned out of this class is that all that matters is how you feel. Not true. <laughs> all right. A little recap. Can somebody tell me what the primary, according to this class, and what we've taught here, what is the primary role of the Holy Spirit? Yep. To guide us into all truth. To guide us into all truth. And more specifically, the truth about 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 who God is, and what He wants for our life. Um, and we get we get this from John 14, 14 through seventeen when Jesus is promising us the Holy Spirit. He that's what He says. He says when He comes, He'll guide you into all truth. And it's this whole idea that we're not going to be left as orphans. We're not going to be left alone. Uh, but but Jesus said, I'll send another counselor to you, and He's going to indwell us and teach us about righteousness and about the deeper things of God. The Spirit searches the deep things of God, and He reveals them to us, the believer. It's in this revelation from the Spirit that the believer is sanctified. And another way that we can say that is, it's in this revelation that the believer is set free from the bondage of sin. So anytime you hear the word sanctification, I want you to always remember that means being freed from the bonds, bondage of sin, or the power of sin, or the grip of sin. Bondage, that's the life-choking grip that sin puts on your life. And I don't care who you are, you have experienced sin, right? Everybody has a sin problem. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. There's nobody out there who hasn't sinned. Therefore, if anybody has sinned, you know what I mean when I say that sin has a life-choking grip on your life. 
And the deeper that you've gone into sin, the more that you probably realize that if you've come out of it. If you're in the midst of it, sometimes you lie to yourself and you keep yourself so busy that you don't see it. And we, we tend to, to want to comfort ourselves. We don't want to experience pain. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, sanctification is painful. Not always, but a lot of times it's very painful because what it is is it's God's Holy, the Holy Spirit. It's Him getting into your life and, and it literally He's plowing up that old hard field that's never been plowed up before. It's been sitting there for a long time. It's hard as a rock. And when He's breaking that soul apart, the soul of your heart, guess what? It doesn't feel good sometimes, but it's a necessary thing that has to happen in order for God to plant something, in order for it to grow, and in order for there to be fruit of the Spirit. So, when I say that sin has a life-choking grip on our lives, I think it would be proper again to define what sin is. Romans 14.23 defines sin as anything that doesn't come from faith. Romans 14.23 says, But whoever has doubts is condemned. Now, this is talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And inherently there was nothing wrong. What Paul says, there's nothing inherently wrong with, with, the, with the believer eating this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. He said, you know, if you eat it and you doubt, maybe you're wondering in your heart if it's wrong and you do it anyways. He says, you're condemned. Even though there's nothing inherently wrong with it. Why is it wrong? He says, because they're eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. i got a visitor coming tonight. I want to make sure that he knows where we're at. Um, so what do you think about that for a second? Anything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, what are the obvious implications of a statement such as this? What are... When I say that, that anything that doesn't come from faith is sin, what, are, what, what, what immediate questions arise in your mind? Yeah. Does anything about this statement, though, is there anything in you that says, oh, I don't know if that means what it says? You know, sometimes we read in Scripture, like the whole verse about it's, it's harder for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? And we, we read that verse, and we're like, well, surely that doesn't mean that you can't be rich and go to heaven, right? So we, we, we'll, 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 we'll seek another explanation. And, and I don't think that verse means that. But is this that type of verse? Is anything that doesn't come from faith, is that really sin? Is that really what he means? The question that I have when I, when I read such a statement is that something of this effect. Are there not things, some things that are just spiritually neutral? You know what I'm saying? I mean, is everything like the, a matter of faith and sin? I mean, is, is it really that black and white? I mean, aren't there some things that are just spiritually neutral? For example, this cup of coffee. If I drink this and I don't drink it in faith, am I sinning? Or, or if I go to the store the grocery store to buy, a to buy a gallon of milk, is, is the purchase of the gallon of milk, if, if it's not rooted in faith, is that a sin? And if so, how can something so insignificant as buying a gallon of milk be a matter of faith? That's the question that I'm having when I read this statement, that anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. 
Because I always thought sin was me breaking one of God's rules, right? And now we t- typically think of sin. Sin is when I violate one of God's rules. He's got the Ten Commandments. He's got all his, his rules, you know, and <coughs> all the stuff about being monogamous and, and being uh, not gossiping about people and not going out there and getting drunk and don't slander and no witchcraft, no orgies. Yeah, that, that, that list in Galatians chapter 5. And I'm thinking, that, oh, if I, if I violate one of those, that's what a sin is. But Paul really expands the definition of sin. Paul says that anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. So what does that leave us in our walk with God? Is there, are there things like the cup of coffee or the gallon of milk that are, that are just spiritually neutral? Well, folks, this is where I think the Spirit wants to take the human mind. When I say the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. I think this is where he wants to take us, but... Uh, the Spirit, as we know, searches the deep things of God, and He makes them known to our feeble and finite minds. If you don't get anything else out of this class, I do want you to get this one point. The Holy Spirit, and I'm going to read this because I don't, I don't, I want you to, I want to make sure I get this right. The one thing I want you to get out of this class is that the Holy Spirit reveals to the believer that there are no things that are spiritually neutral. The Holy Spirit reveals to the believer that there are no things that are spiritually neutral. He reveals to the believer, and this is where we're going to finish this class, by the way, next week, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And we're going to end this class next week uh, on, the, on the Lordship of Christ. I've already given you kind of a little bit of a teaser when I unpro, uh, unprovoked uh, and unplanned a few weeks ago. I went off on a tangent, <coughs> I think on Revelation 19 or maybe Revelation 1 or Revelation 5. I can't remember. I was in Revelation, I know. And I was talking about the image of Jesus with the sword protruding from his mouth. And, and, uh, and that's, that I, got, I gave you a little taste of this lordship of Christ, but the Spirit reveals to the believer that there are no things that are spiritually neutral. Everything is either a matter of faith or it's sin. Even, as you'll see throughout this class tonight, even the purchase of a gallon of milk. I'm going to go to the grocery store after I leave here, and, and, and if I do that in a way that is not from faith, then I'm sinning. And it can be done in a way that's not from faith, as you'll see. There are no things that are spiritually neutral. Jesus Christ is Lord over all. The word that you can Google if you really want to start learning more about this theology that I'm telling you about is um, the, the biblical or you could say biblical or Christian worldview. Okay? Biblical or Christian worldview. So if you, and this is a whole other theology that we haven't really taught in our brotherhood. But we are called to have a Christian worldview. What is a worldview? A worldview is, these are my glasses right here, it's the lens through which you see the world. Everything, when you look at the world, it needs to be viewed through the lens of Christianity or through the lens of the revelation that comes through the Bible, through the Word of God. And Christians, we are called to have a biblical worldview. When I showed you and I did the, and I did the, uh, the class on the, on the two-story uh, dichotomy 
of truth and, 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 and faith and reason. You guys remember that? And I talked about all the different philosophers. I, we, we went through, uh, I think we started with Søren Kierkegaard and went to Immanuel Kant, to Frederick Hegel, to, no, we started with, uh, we ended with Kierkegaard. We started with um, Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And we talked about, I think we talked about Karl Marx. And we talked about this division between faith and reason. And we had that upper story and the lower story. And then the upper story where things are subjected that they can't really be known, that's where we put faith, the meaning of life, and values. And down here, where things can be known, that's where we put reason. Public truths, true for everybody. These are true for me, but not necessarily true for you. These are our preferences, our private beliefs. This is where, this, this down here though, scientific facts, mathematical equations, that's where reason exists. And I showed you how we ended up with this, this dichotomy in the way that we view knowledge, in the way that we view truth, and that the Holy Spirit's job is to guide me in all truth, and we have an unbiblical view of truth and knowledge, that's a, that presents a problem, because then you have a youth group like ours here at this church, who 90% of them said that the word that they use to describe a belief that, has, that they have no reason to believe to be true is faith. Why? Because they believe faith is up here, where it can't be known to be true. So there are serious implications of this. But the opposite of this, of this dichotomy, is the Christian worldview. Because what the Christian worldview teaches and what the Holy Spirit really is trying to uncover in the believer is that there is a holistic truth that can be known by the believer about reality. It's a holistic truth, a worldview, the way the world really is that can be known by the believer. How is it known? Through revelation. There is no knowledge without revelation. There is, no, there is zero knowledge without revelation. And this has been a debate inside the church for some time now. Uh, some of the, my friends who subscribe to natural theology, which there was a point in my life where I thought this was true. I thought that you could basically prove the existence of God without revelation. I've since come to abandon that belief. Uh, for the reasons I mentioned the week I talk about epistemology, you can't know anything without revelation. The week I talked about this as well. And revelation comes via the Holy Spirit. So the human, the, the Spirit wants to take the human mind to this place where everything, including the milk purchase, and everything that the Spirit reveals to us is to enable the believer to put all things under the Lordship of Christ. All things under the Lordship of Christ, including my purchase of milk and the drinking of coffee. So I mentioned how Paul defines sin in Romans 14, 23, namely that it doesn't, it's anything that doesn't come from faith. But I want to draw deeper into that thought. And hopefully by the end of the night you'll see exactly what I mean when I talk about this, this purchase of milk, how it must be rooted in faith. I want to draw deeper into that because I think we have to if the believer is really going to experience substantial healing from the bondage of sin. That's really what I'm after. I've got this corrupt nature. I've got this corrupt nature due to, due to my own ego, due to my own. I've got this. I've got this uh, psychological disorder where I want to be God, and you have the same thing. That's why you sin. And so, because of that, I've created pain in my life with the help of Satan. I've created pain in my life, and sin has a grip on me. It's choking the life out of me, and I, and I want release from that. And if I'm going to really be released from it, I'm going to have to adopt the Christian worldview. I'm going to have to get rid of this dichotomy that I've been trained to believe. 
So to do that, I want to define sin in a different way. I say different. It's really the same thing what Paul said. But I want to define it as, as Francis Schaeffer defines it in the book that you guys are reading, True Spirituality. Does anyone know how Schaeffer defines sin in True Spirituality? I think I've said it here a little bit. Huh? Death. Well, it, 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 leads to, it definitely leads to death. He does say that. Huh? Coveting is, oh, I love that part about coveting where he talks about it being the hub of the will. He has the Ten Commandments, you know, and in the middle, he says the spokes are all the nine command, the first nine commandments: Thou shalt not murder, Thou shalt not steal, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But the hub of the wheel, he says, is coveting. And he says you can't violate any of the first nine commandments without first violating the tenth commandment. In fact, he says the tent, all the other commandments are external commandments. They're things that you can see. Um, they're things like if I murder somebody, that, that's, 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 an, that's an outward sin, right? But do you remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount about murder? Remember how he upped the ante a little bit? Even if you hate your brother. See, Jesus came and was basically like, uh-uh. Boys, you, you guys, uh, you're talking about divorce? How about this? You even look at a woman lustfully and you committed adultery in your heart, right? So when Jesus came, he didn't come to really elevate it. What he came was to explain it. He came to explain the law. They never got it. They were looking at the externals, but that Tenth Commandment, that coveting, man, that's a big one there. I almost did tonight's lesson on that, but um, I knew we were short on time. But, uh, but he defines sin, and really it's what coveting is, if you think about it. And I'll show you in a second. He defines sin as calling God a liar. And I like that. I don't like to call God a liar, but I like that definition because it makes a lot of sense to me. And when he first said it, I thought, that's a bit of an overkill. I mean, there's been times where I've sinned, and I've, ne I mean, I've sinned a lot in my life. I don't ever recall saying, God, you're a liar. I don't remember saying that. Well, you know why? Because I'm not going to say that, right? That's too obvious. It's sin, though, it, it, essentially, it is what I'm saying because it's God's telling me about reality through revelation in many different ways, by the way. It can be through the Word of God. In Romans 1, it says it can be through the creation itself that they exchanged the glory of God, for, as I read last week, for images made to look like mortal man and birds. So they, they exchanged the creation, the Creator for the creation, Right? That's, that's a revelation they received, a general revelation from God. Now, they may not know about anything about Jesus, but they know God exists. They know they didn't make the trees outside. We know that inherently, and we can reject that. We can say, nah, I am God. There, I, I, I am the greatest. Well, you're, you're basically telling that thing inside you that's speaking, that you're saying, God, you're lying to me. Um, anytime I sin, it's me saying, God, you don't have my best interest at heart. Just like in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned when, they, when, when Satan came on the scene and tempted them. His whole thing was basically, God's lying to you. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And they were like, well, no, he said we could have, actually he said we could have any tree except for that one. Well, of course he said that. He didn't want you to know what he's going to do. You're not going to die. Why can't you eat that tree? Well, he said if we eat it, we'll die. You're not going to die. What's that saying? 
Yeah, God lied to you. God's a liar. Don't believe what he said. And so they believed Satan, the deceiver, the father of all lies. They said, God, you're a liar. I'm not going to die. And they ate the fruit. This is the, this is the root of all sin. To understand what Paul meant, well, let me back, let me back up. How does this statement that Schaefer says that sin is nothing more than calling God a liar, how does that gel with how Paul defines sin? Well, to understand what Paul meant by anything that doesn't come from faith is sin, if, I think we need to de- define what faith is. If we go back to the point I made two weeks ago, we can see how this verse could be troublesome for the believer. We've got to define what faith is. If anything that doesn't come from faith is sin, if anything that doesn't come from faith is sin, I want to know what faith is. Because I don't want to, I want to make sure that I'm in the vein of that. Well, if we adopt what the world has taught us, that faith and what our youth believe that faith is the thing that describes a belief that you have that you have no reason to believe it to be true and that isn't backed up by any facts, then what I'm almost saying is, if I'm reading Paul, I would be saying that being rational is a sin, right? Anything that doesn't come from this leap into the unknown is sin. And I think this leaves the believer completely powerless to have any victory over sin in their life. Because what you're essentially saying is there's no way that you can ever know any of this to be true. In fact, if you take Paul, his verse, and you have a distorted view of faith, you're actually saying it would be a sin to know this to be true. Because anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. And if faith is me jumping into the unknown, then anytime I don't jump into the unknown, anytime I, I jump because I see a, there's a reason to jump, then that's sin because it's not in faith, it's in reason. See how we've, see how we've done that? So then we go into our church buildings, and that's where we have this, the existential leap and the whole experiential worship, which, again, experiencing God's not a bad thing, but when, but when it's an experience without meaning, it certainly is a bad thing. And it's not of God. God is a God of meaning and a God of order. Draw the, uh, uh, so I, to, I have the two-story house here. Um, I've talked about the division of knowledge and how that relates to the Holy Spirit, whose main role is to deliver truth and knowledge to the believer. He wants to have a holistic worldview, a holistic view of faith and knowledge. He doesn't want to erode faith into non-belief. And as Schaefer says in True Spirituality, it's not... Faith in faith. That's not, war. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is faith in Jesus Christ. And not just faith in this idea of Jesus Christ, like liberal theology would teach. It's not, it's not the idea of Jesus. It is Jesus, the man Jesus, who walked on earth for 33 years as a man who came from God, incarnate, physically died, was put in a tomb, and three days later, his dead body rose up from the grave. That's pretty incredible. It's one of the reasons why Phil Robertson is so impactful when he speaks. Because when he talks about Jesus, it took me a long time to figure out why he was so effective. But I've done, I've done a few events with him now, and I've noticed when he talks about Jesus, he says things like, the man from Galilee who came out of the tomb 2,000 years ago and walked around planet Earth. Now think about that. It's, it's, or most of us would say, 
well, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Okay, that's religious talk, right? Everybody says that. Huh? He put it in real terms. And really what he did, he says, a man from Galilee, which means now he's given me space. You know, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's, on, that's actually happened on the globe. That's geography, right? Galilee, I mean, that's a place. That's space. And then 2,000 years ago, he roots him in time. Space and time. What's he, what he, well, you, know, you, know, you know what he's, he, unknowingly, I told him he's doing this. He didn't even know it. I said, you're talking about, about Jesus like he's real. <laughs> Does it make a difference? See, why is his ministry effective? He doesn't talk about Jesus like this. Well, for me, I've accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. It's, no, no. I'm talking about the man from Galilee who came out of the tomb 2,000 years ago. Okay, you're talking about something real. This guy's talking about his little religion over here. You see the difference? No power, all the power in the world because it's real. This is how you experience victory over sin. I think that he also makes a point that, uh, you know, when you join that upper and lower story, not only do you believe that Jesus existed in space and time, but the scripture also demonstrates that his Holy Spirit existed in space and time. You know, and, and the resurrected Jesus, like on the road to Emmaus, when he said yeah. Paul was on the road to Emmaus about noontime. And then, you know, it, yeah. it, you know, it says that you know, the brightness and the glory which was Jesus manifested before calamity. Yeah. But, you know, and just as true as Jesus being here, there's also, you know, that supernatural existence that, you know, if we had a Christian worldview, we've got to believe not only in the natural but supernatural existing at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and I didn't get into the, the supernatural miracles in this class because I think that, that that's an obsession that a lot of people have in searching for that. But come on in, Jamie. Jamie brought king cake from New Orleans, y'all. Yeah. So, have a seat, man. Me and, me and Jamie used to work together uh, back in the day. Back when I was in the pharmaceutical business a long time ago. Yeah, still about three weeks ago. Um, but, you know, I think about the idea of miracles, and um, I will, I will, let me, let me chase a rabbit for a second. But you're right, though. We need to be open to the, not open, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fact. There is a supernatural world, right? Now, I haven't personally witnessed any miracles per se, like the ones that were happening in the New Testament, but I'm also not a cessationist, which is what the Church of Christ historically is. We believe that the miracles cease to exist. Uh, I think when they say the New Testament came or the church came, different, different, different theories on it. Um, I believe that if I were to take a timeline of history, like this right here, our timeline of history, and every time if we went through the Bible and every time there was a miracle... We just put a dot every time. We just record them on our timeline. It's what it would look like. You'd have creation. There were some miracles going on. You know what I'm saying? Some wild stuff. The prophets, some wild stuff was going on. The, the, the exodus of the Israelites and the establishment of the new church, right? So it's not as if biblical history is littered with just this outpouring of the miraculous from the Holy Spirit. That's not the case. So the fact that, you know, I may not see them today, um, and, and I haven't seen them, 
I'm not, I'm not necessarily close to the idea. And there is a supernatural world. Well, I mean, I was, I was specifically talking about the existence of the supernatural. Of the unseen. Yeah. So you're not just talking about the, the miraculous gifts. You're, yeah, I got you. Yeah. Yeah, and there's and that does put in, into perspective when you consider the fact that there's that they are there's an evil there's evil demons and and fallen angels battling with 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 God's angels over our soul, you know, and that the devil is literally prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Um, yeah, it really does put it into perspective. But liberal theology and and the secular world, they want to turn everything into mechanical. They want to turn everything into the physical, right? And there is no spiritual world out there, which, uh, you know, consequently uh, that affects a lot of things. It affects our marriages, right? It affects our sex life. You know, we live in a culture that has turned sex into something that's strictly mechanical, and it's, it's, it's strictly physical. And uh, there's a generation of, of people my age that we are completely distorted in our sexuality because we were raised in a culture that has told us that, that it's only physical and that's all that matters. It's postmodernism because it's basically saying uh, that all that matters is how things are perceived. So if I can make my body, make myself look the right way, it doesn't really matter what I really am. All that matters is how you perceive me because perception is reality. See, there's no reality within. It's how I'm perceived. So we live in this very superficial world, uh, a culture that, that rewards, a culture that celebrates pornography and not just the hardcore stuff. I'm talking about turn on MTV. I hadn't watched it in years, but I used to watch it. I mean, look at where our culture is headed. It's just like, what in the world is going on? It's because we refuse to acknowledge a, a supernatural world. So, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, so we're not talking about faith and faith. Faith is based in knowledge. You can have all the zeal that you want, but if it's not based in knowledge, and more specifically the knowledge of God that only comes through revelation, you know what that is? Just mere humanism. Just it's just you promoting yourself again. That's all it is. If faith is not based in knowledge, the only knowledge that comes through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, it's mere humanism. Look at what Paul said. Turn to Romans chapter ten. Romans ten says this is this is Paul giving us the reason why Israel needs the gospel. Now remember who Israel was. It's God's people, right? Israel's God's, not, it is his chosen people. These are the ones that I read about last week that said, we don't have, well, our only father is God. And Jesus is like, yeah, not really. It's actually Satan. Which for some reason makes them mad. I don't know. Anytime you tell someone their father is Satan, people get mad for some reason. He says, brethren, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. 
for I bear them witness that I have that they have a zeal for God. So he's acknowledging their zeal. He said, no, you boys and girls, y'all got the zeal, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Did you notice that? But the, 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 they rejected the righteousness of God and they sought to establish their own righteousness. You see, they would not submit to God. So let me ask you this question. What is the opposite of spirit-driven? Well, you're definitely dead. Yeah. Flesh-driven, or the word I used is humanism. All those are correct. All, but but I, I, I use the word humanism. Humanism is that by beginning with myself, I can come up with some type of system of knowledge. What the Israelites do it, were doing, it, their humanistic effort was, by beginning with ourselves, we're going to uh, establish our own righteousness. How do they do that? How, how did the Pharisees do that? Yeah. Were they good at it? They're pretty good. I mean, Paul, yeah, Paul says, I mean, I was, I was the chief of all, I, mean, I had it down. I was the Jew of all Jews. Um, you know, they would take strings and tie them to their house, and they would hold that string, and they'd walk all the way, and they'd go into town with that string so that they could be connected, they're still connected with their house, so they're not violating the Sabbath. Or, or they would go out and take a, 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 a piece of uh, <coughs> a fixture from their house, before the Sabbath, and they would take it into town, and like, let's say this came from my house, I would sit this in the middle of town, and then I would go home. Well, guess what? On the Sabbath, I could go into town now. You know why? Because part of my house was in town. And so they just found ways around it. So they were just legalistic, but they, had, they set their own code for righteousness. That's why when Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount, it was, it was such a, a, a wrecking ball to their system. Because he's basically saying, like, no, you, you may not be murdering people, but you hate people. It's the same thing. You may not be committing adultery, but you're out there lusting after women. It's the same thing. God wants your heart. You can't set up your own system of righteousness. By beginning with themselves, they, sat, they, they, they sought to, to, to develop their own system of righteousness. And this is not faith. This is legalism. But to understand faith properly... Faith is based in knowledge. It's not based in zeal, according to what Paul says in Romans 10. The Israelites had zeal, but they had no faith because it wasn't based in knowledge. Now think about the implications of what I just said for a second. Faith is not based in zeal. That's a bite to chew on. Because that's not what we think in America, especially in evangelical churches. Because if I see a person come in and they're fired up and they got zeal, you know, first man, that's, that's a faithful servant. If he's just getting at you. But you know what I notice a lot sometimes, and I'm not, and not everybody's like this, but I've noticed a lot of times the more fired up somebody seems to be, it's like, yeah, I got to the point where I was like, yeah, we'll see how that works out, and they just burn out. You know what I mean? And I've seen that a lot in my life, and I've done that myself. I get on this spiritual high. And then it's like, but there's nothing really there, just zeal. There's no knowledge behind it. I'm not really 
receiving revelation or I'm receiving it, but I'm not really, I'm not really absorbing the revelation from the Spirit. But let's look at a different idea of faith. One that's not built on zeal, it's not built on charisma, it's not built on experience. One that's built on knowledge. Who would you say is the father? If you said, who's the father of faith, who would you say? Abraham. Abraham. I mean, if you think about all the people in the Bible, you said, okay, who's the, who's, who, Zach, give me your best shot on your religion. Who was the best one? Who was who your guy? Who's, your most, who's the one that describes faith the best? We've got to go with Abraham. He's considered the father of faith. Romans chapter 4. Y'all turn to Romans 4. Bobby, will you read verse 13 through 16? Romans 4, 13 through 16. For those who live by law are heirs. Faith has no value in the promise is worthless. Because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. So... So when we read this and we get this idea of whatever Abraham's faith was, one, we know it was the opposite of, of works. Um, we know that based on this, that it doesn't depend on the law. We also know that we are to have the same type of faith that Abraham had, according to Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 16. And then that last part tells us that he is the father of us all. So I want you to consider Abraham for a second because I think this whole idea of the Holy Spirit, this whole revelation of truth, which is really, when I first started in teaching about this kind of stuff, I remember I was teaching a class in the big class over in the fellowship hall on Sunday morning. And Bill Smith would sit in the front row, which is always kind of intimidating any time Bill Smith sits in the front row of your class. I'm really glad he's not in this class because I know if he was, he afterwards he he would always critique me, and he well actually Zach and he, and he would give me some type of of uh, of correction, which is great. I love your granddad; he's a good man. I'm thankful for him. He messed up on you, but every all the other grandkids are great. Uh, but but Bill said he said well, I was doing apologetics class, and Bill said, and I, I said Zach, you think you're doing apologetics? He said, would you know what you're really teaching? I said what? He said faith. I didn't, I didn't really understand what he meant at that, at that time. Um, but that stuck with me. And, it just like, I, and, I, and, and years later, when I started getting into some of this stuff, it made sense to me. I said, of course that's what I was teaching. What he was saying is, you're teaching that you can know this to be true. And that's what biblical faith is. And Bill would also, I've heard him say on multiple occasions, that it's not, uh, there's no such thing as blind faith. He just said that that, 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 that doesn't exist. That's not what faith is. Blind, faith is not blind. Faith is sight. So it's interesting, and, and he's got a, a great talk on that. But when we talk about Abraham, and he is the prime example of the kind of faith that we should have. And I'm going to show you how Abraham's faith and the Holy Spirit joining together in our life, um, or the Holy Spirit revealing things to us, how this works hand in hand. Let's go back to Romans 4. I'm going to read through the whole chapter. What shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. In fact, Abraham was just uh, well, Abraham was justified. If, if, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, well, he had something to boast about, but not before God. 
What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same things when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin, who, who, uh, whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? Let me back up for a second. Listen to what Paul's saying here. I remember uh, he says that if you get paid for what you do, what do we what does he call that? A wage. Okay, um, I'm working with CenturyLink right now, um, and we, one of my clients, and we do staffing solutions. I just got a guy placed out there that that uh, that they hired, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna send them an invoice, and they're gonna pay me. And if they don't pay me, guess what's gonna happen? We'll have an issue, right? Why? Because I earned that money. I earned it because it's a wage. If you work for you, the company you work for, when you get your paycheck, do you go into your boss and I just want to thank you for this wonderful gift? I don't I I don't know how to begin to thank you. Do you say that? In fact, if you don't get paid, what do you say? I'm going to get mine. Where's my, where's my paycheck? Get my check, right? I want my check. Don't mess up somebody's check, y'all. You mess up somebody's check and they get mad for some reason. Look, people get mad when, you don't get, when they don't get paid for what they've done. People deserve their wages. A worker deserves his wages. And what he's saying is, he's saying to the one who works, wages aren't a gift, but the, but the person paying them is obliged. They're obligated to pay them. They had to pay them. It was a deal. It was a contract. They earned it. However, when he talks about our relationship with God and our becoming righteous, he says, the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It's a gift. It's a gift. Do you know why I don't want to go to God and demand my wages? Yeah. Why would that be a bad idea? If you said, God, give me what I deserve. <laughs> yeah. Bad idea. Don't go to God and say, God, give me what I deserve. I want mine now. Because if you say that, if you believe what the Bible teaches in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So he says, okay, boom, you're dead. Over. Bad idea. No, when I come to God, it's out of faith. And going back to the first class, what Joanne said, she said, well, the way you're really describing belief, you remember what you said, Joanne? What was the word? Trust. She said trust. She said it's trusting God. Whoever, however, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly. Do you see this type of faith that Abraham had? It was not a faith by works. It was a faith 
built, built upon, predicated on trust. Two different systems here. Two completely different systems, as I'll show you next week. And the Holy Spirit is the revealer of truth to us. So if I'm being communicated with via the Holy Spirit, who is it the one that I should be trusting? What, what, what message should I be trusting? It's the one that the Holy Spirit is revealing to me. When he comes, he will guide you into all truth. Okay, what's your response? How do, okay, he's going to guide me into all truth. How do I get righteous? Trust the one that's delivering you into all truth. Why should I trust him? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. He loves me? Yeah. You received not a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by what? By faith. Righteousness comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings Wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also, also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as it was said to him, so shall your offspring breed. That's a big verse. Because of all this talk about Abraham believing, we need to ask the question, believed what? What did he believe? God's promise. And what was the promise? He's, yeah, you're going, to have, you're going to have a baby. But hold, hold on, I have a baby. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, what, 75 years old when he got the revelation, I think. Or, uh, you know, and I'm like, he's like, I'm old. Yeah. I'm old. My wife's old. It's, it's done. We're done with that. What are you talking about? In fact, somebody laughed. Remember that? I ain't going to have a baby. He says, you're going to have a child. And not only that, your offspring. I want you to look, up in, the, look in the sky. And he says, you see the stars? Yeah, I see the stars. That's how many grandkids you're going to have. Abraham's like, he can't see it. But he believed God. And it was that belief. He believed that God was telling him the truth. Now, there's a big difference between uh, believing in something that seems impossible and being illogical. It was not illogical to believe God in this promise. Illogical is like, would be me saying, a married bachelor. That's illogical. Because if it's married, he's not a bachelor, right? 
or a round square. That's illogical. It doesn't make sense. But if we believe in the supernatural world, and, and remember we talked about the division of faith and knowledge, and remember we talked about the universe a few weeks ago, and I talked about how they closed off the universe and turned it into a closed system where God couldn't get in and nothing was getting out and everything that happened was the dominoes falling over. It was the uniformity of natural causes. Well, look, if we adopt the Christian worldview, this is our universe. It's open. God can get in and do whatever he wants to do. If, if the whole thing was spoken to existence and time began to exist according to science and according to the Bible... Is it that big of a leap if, if our God can create something out of nothing? I don't have a problem believing that he can put a baby inside the womb of a 90-year-old woman. I have no problem. That's like child's play. In fact, the resurrection of the dead is child's play. At that point, he spoke the world into existence out of nothing. That's a scientific fact. If that's possible, <laughs> okay, I'm just gonna, then it's all possible at that point. Whatever God wants to do... God can do it. That's not an illogical leap. And I don't think that Abraham made an irrational leap of faith. In fact, just the opposite. I think he did it based on the revelation from God that was overwhelming to him. It was something that was based in what he knew. And more specifically, it was faith based in who he knew. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This is faith right here. This comes from the Holy Spirit. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't say, God, you're lying. You're not, there's no way you could possibly give me a baby. No way. You're lying. Not true. He didn't say that. He believed God. He trusted God. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteous, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So in other words, you want to be righteous? I do. What does it mean to be righteous? I want to be in a right relationship with God. I want when God looks at me, I don't want him to say, no, we're enemies. I want to say, righteous, man, you're righteous. You're in. Come on. I accept you. I see clean. I see you're clean. I'm good with you. How do I get there? Be better? Read my Bible more? Do more works? No, no, no. Ain't not about that. Believe God. See, so we've changed the word to believe in God. We read that verse right there, believe in God, and I'm afraid that that's lost its meaning because a lot of people believe in God. James says even the demons believe in God and shudder. He's not talking about believing in God. He's talking about believing God. In other words, trusting God. And as the Holy Spirit reveals all truth to me, as he guides me into all truth, my role, again, is active passivity Raise the empty hands of faith, I believe. Let's take about a five-minute break. Let's get back into Abraham. Uh, we just kind of went through why it was why 
Abraham was considered a man of faith and, and more specifically why he was considered righteous. He was considered righteous because he was a man of faith. He was a man of faith because he believed God. He believed God. I was telling him he trusted God. So, um, Joanne says he was already over in Genesis 22, so she beat us to the punch. Uh, but if y'all would, turn to Genesis 15. I just want to go through the story real quick of Abraham, and I think we can uncover some pearls in here that we can... Actually, this part is about Ab- Abram before he was Abraham. Uh, but we can uh, uncover some pearls that I think will... Help us drive home this idea that faith is believing God. And then we'll go back to, let me make sure I don't forget to go back to Paul's definition of faith to wrap this up. Okay, I'm going to write myself a note here. The Lord's covenant with Abram in chapter 15 verse 1 says, After this the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, can you give me, uh, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And there's that famous verse. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That verse 6 is the fundamental verse in the Bible to understand if we are going to adopt a biblical worldview of faith. Right there, verse 6. That's it. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did he believe the Lord about? He believed the Lord, what he just promised him in verse 5. He believed that God would indeed give him not just a child, but he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I would say, uh, furthermore, it is in this believing of God, and notice I didn't say belief in God, believing of God, that uh, that. Let me let me let me back up here. I lost my place here in my notes. Oh yeah, um, I want I want to make the this distinction which I think I've already made in saying believing in God and believing God because we have to adapt our language to adequately explain some of the tr- spiritual truths that we're getting at here. Abraham believed God. He believed that God was telling him the truth about reality. He believed that God had his best interest at heart. And another way of saying this is, as Joanne pointed out, Abraham trusted God. He trusted him. Now, I will say that I don't think he fully understood or grasped the promise that was being made. I know he didn't. Here we are thousands of years later, and we are considered grafted in to, to the to the to the the family of Abraham, right? We're, we're Christians. We're Gentiles. We're not Jews, but yet somehow we still consider Abraham the father of our faith. So even in this promise that God made, and this is how amazing our God is, that we never really fully understand how, how much he lavishes on us. I mean, if Abraham had seen a vision uh, of what God really ha- meant when he said, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, it would have probably blown him away. 
He had no clue what God was preparing. I'm going to bring the Messiah through your through through this lineage and all that you know all this to happen. I mean, like like this is going to be incredible, right? I'm going to save all these people through you, and you will be the father of many, many more people, even beyond the folks of Israel. And this belief that Abraham had, even though it was limited, it was that trust that he had in God, not fully understanding everything, but knowing that God had the power to do what he said he was going to do and that God wasn't a liar. It was that belief that God credited righteousness to him. Now, we'll stop here for a moment and show you why the Holy Spirit wants to reveal reality to us. Like Abraham, or Abram in this context, the Holy Spirit wants us to believe Him. To believe that He is telling us the truth. To believe that He has our best interest at heart. He wants us to trust Him. And the reason why, the reason why the Holy Spirit wants us to trust Him is that intimacy with another person, it's impossible to the degree that we are guarding ourselves from being hurt from that person. Okay, think about that for a second. My intimacy with another person will be impossible to the degree that I'm, I'm protecting myself from that person. When you think of the word intimacy, another word that should come to mind is vulnerability. Inside of a marriage, you should be vulnerable with your spouse, and there should be this thing called intimacy. Um, the more vulnerable you are, the more intimate you are. Um, if you think about the most intimate act that we humans can partake in physically is sex. It just so happens that's when you're the most vulnerable. You, you're naked before someone else and you're making yourself vulnerable to this person. If I'm guarding, if I'm not trusting, if I'm not, if I'm protecting, I'm not being intimate. I'm building a barrier, right? And all kind of marriages have problems because of intimacy barriers. And not just sexual intimacy, all kind of... I'm, I'm distracted, I'm whatever. I've, I got a barrier. I don't want you to hurt me. I don't trust you. I don't think you have my best interests at heart. Within the inner life of God, you realize there are no barriers? Within the inner life of God, there are no barriers. Because... Within the inner life of God, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as I've showed you this diagram before, each person within the Godhead is pouring themselves out. 100% to the other persons. And this makes up what we call God or the Trinity or the triune God. And the inner life of God is the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, it's, and it, within the inner life of God, there's complete vulnerability to one another. Now think about that concept. That's why I started with the Trinity whenever I started this class. It's essential to understanding the Trinity if you're going to understand the Holy Spirit and if you're going to understand what the Holy Spirit's revealing to us. 
With inside the inner life of God, there is complete vulnerability. Each person is completely vulnerable to one another, and the result is a perfect intimacy that is the very definition of love. When we say God is love. When God doesn't love. He is love. He is love. He can't, he can't not be love. God is joy. God is good. God is justice. God is, God is fulfillment. God is completely fulfilled within inside of himself. He doesn't need our praise, Acts 17. Why? Because our God is the very essence of vulnerability. And it is that that the Holy Spirit is calling us to. He's calling us to a vulnerability that transcends human understanding. A vulnerability that can only come in the obedience to revelation from God. When we don't trust God, when we protect ourselves from God, when we say, God, you don't have our best interest at heart, we sin. That's what Schaefer meant when he said, calling God a liar. That's what sin is. It's what Paul meant when he said anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. Faith is me believing God, trusting God, allowing myself to be vulnerable with God because it's saying, God, you do have my best interest at heart. Yeah, you really are going to give me a baby and I'm 90-something years old. I believe you. You see that? That's faith. If you didn't believe him, it would be sin because he would be saying, God, you're not going to do that. You're lying to me. Let me do it my way. Which consequently, didn't he do that? Or what did Abraham do after the, after the original promise? You mentioned it earlier. He went to his maidservant, got her pregnant. No, that's right. And he had Ishmael, right? So you think, how that, how that turned out for us? Not too good. So what Abraham basically said, this is another, another side note here, but what Abraham basically said was, he said, man, he said, God, I, I believe you. I think you're going to do it, but I think you need my help. Do we ever do that? Yeah. No, we don't do that. I don't do that. Y'all probably do. I never do that. I'm pretty righteous. But no, we do that. We say, yeah, God, I believe you, but you need my help to do it. Again, that's a form of saying, God, you're a liar. You can't do this on your own. Let me help. Let me, so I'm going to go out there. I, oh, I, I know what he wants me to do. God wants me to go sleep with my maidservant and get her pregnant, and that's how he's going to bless me. Which the result was his wife got jealous. She got mad, kicks her out, and all the, and all the stuff that happened from there on. Just, I mean, just. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We might be still dealing, we might be still dealing with that today, right? Well, if he could have had the heir through, um, through a bank, sir, then God didn't need to come tell him anything because he could have done it all the time. Yeah, yeah. But, what's, but what's, what's awesome about it, though, to me, is that you have this man who was called the father of our faith, and even he wasn't perfect. Even he messed it up, which makes me feel good. I'm like, whew, because I'm not as godly as Abraham was. Well, you know, Abraham messed up pretty big. He tried to take matters into his own hands, too. And he repented, and God came back, and finally, he did what he, he said he was going to do. We don't want to, we don't need to be, build these barriers around our heart. When we sin, 
what we're essentially doing is we're doing what Adam and Eve did after they sinned too. We, we take those fig leaves and we start to cover up because we don't want God to see us naked and we don't want others to see us naked. And we cover up ourselves and there's this loss of, of intimacy there with, with the Creator. And what we do is, since real intimacy can only be experienced in the relational context of God, that's really the only, only way we're going to really experience intimacy is when this is right with God. Like it's got to be, even in my marriage, like my marriage, the intimacy, intimacy between me and Jill really will only be experienced in the context of God and of the gospel. It's the only way. But what we do is we attempt to replace that real intimacy with counterfeits. That's a big deal. What are counterfeit intimacies? What is counterfeit intimacy? Um, yeah. A hundred dollar bill. If I lay one on the counter here and I laid a counterfeit, they look very similar, don't they? In fact, years ago I was in a card game and I won some money. I don't gamble anymore, okay? So let's just get that out of the way. Anyone listen to the podcast? But I did win I did win a hundred dollars in this card game. And the guy gave me a hundred dollar bill. I went to cash this thing at the bank, and guess what? It was a counterfeit. A counterfeit. I was so mad. I was like, that dude gave me a... It looked real. I couldn't tell. But you know what? When it got time to spend it, it wouldn't spend. In the same way, these counterfeit intimacies, they look real. They look like they would fulfill us. But then when we go and we experience them, and it's over, you get this feeling like, ugh, it's not, it just, it, I want more. Or you feel disgusted by what you did. You know, you ever felt that way? You did something, why did I do that? See, it's not real intimacy. It's counterfeit. It's a fraud. It ends up, we end up in misery. So, when I started this class, I got on a little tangent, um, because Zach got me fired up on a subject um, that I want to go back to. I was going to wait till this week to do it, but I've already told some of y'all. But uh, you had this, this idea of who God is, okay? This is God. We always hate to draw God in a circle because he's not bound. This is man, and this is animal. And this will be our line... Of despair. It's not exact, okay? So we have this who we have this thing right here called the Creator. This is God. He's not a thing, but God the Creator. Then we have down here the creatures, okay? And we have man being the higher creature. Animal being the lower creature, what makes man the higher creature is that if you notice, he overlaps, his identity overlaps with the identity of the Creator. See, the animal doesn't, he, he, he's nowhere to be found up here. But, this, but man, see, we, we overlap with animal, 
So part of us is like the animal, like our DNA, our the way we the our lungs and red hemoglobin. But we're like God as well. Genesis one twenty six says that man is made in the image of God. In the image of God, He created both male and female. We have rational faculties. We have ability to appreciate aesthetic beauty in the world. We have the ability to communicate with language. Um, you know, all these things that make us like God in His image. Now sin comes along, and man says, Satan comes along really, and he says, Hey man, did God really say that you can't eat from the tree, any tree in the garden? And man says, No. God said we can have anything we want, just that one tree. If we if we if we eat that tree, we'll die. <coughs> Satan says, God's a liar. He lied to you. He does not want you to eat that fruit because if you eat that fruit, you'll actually move up here and you'll be God. That's what he told him. He said, you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. He just doesn't want you to know. He's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. You can't trust him. He's trying to hold you down. And man believed him, or woman believed him, really. And then the man ate the fruit. They both opened their eyes. They realized they were naked. So the original sin, what it was, the first sin was man trying to be God. Okay, I want you to keep that in mind. It was man saying, I don't like being the creature. I don't like that. I want to be the creator. So he starts banging up against the wall of his existence. This is the wall, the boundary of his existence. And he's trying to break through that boundary so that he can get up here and be God but there's an inherent problem with this. What's the inherent problem with this? We're trying to break out of, our, of, of, of the barrier of our existence. Anybody see a problem with that? Yeah. Yeah. You can't, I can't be the creator. Why not? Well, because I'm not the creator. Um, I can't create things out of nothing. Ex nihilo. I just can't do it. It's impossible. I can't fly. I can't stop gravity. I can't. I can't manipulate physics in a way like God can. I can't. I can't stop entropy. I can't stop. I mean, I can, I'm finite. I don't have an eternal past. I'm not. I'm contingent. I'm all these things that I am. <laughs> There's no way that I could ever become God. So as I futilely. Why, in fact, by the way, why would I even try that? Why would I try to... Why, what idiot would believe they could be God? One that's believing in a lie. Okay? Satan is the father of all lies, as I read last week. When he lies, he speaks his native language. I think that he actually believes all the lies that he tells. But this is, this is ridiculous. Sin is just stupid. But we do it. Think, why do we do that? That's the stupidest thing you would ever do. I, I can never, of course I can't be God. But as I try and I'm under the power of this delusion, I'm ultimately met with a frustration. And the frustration is no matter how hard I try, I'm never going to get outside of this. I try all these counterfeit forms of intimacy, but I can never experience it. I try these counterfeit forms uh, uh, Things of fulfillment, but I'm never fulfilled. And I, I, I attempt all this, and I just keep hitting this wall, and I can't figure out how to get outside this wall. And 
what the Holy Spirit's telling you is, because you ain't getting out that wall. That's what you are. That's where, and that's great if you will bask in that. Be the creature before the creator and quit futilely trying to become the creator himself. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. And when we try, it's just mere stupidity. So what God, and the, more specifically the Holy Spirit is telling us, is dwell here as man. Now what happens is, is when, is when you, you give up, Either you give up and you say, I, and you raise the empty hands of faith and you say, God, save me, and then you can dwell as a creature before the Creator, or you can use these God-given rational faculties and everything, and you can start basically using them to intensify your animalistic desires, and then you can come down here below this line of despair and you can live with the animals. But you're, see, you're below this line of despair, and that's when things get really sick and really sad and really, really miserable. Abraham took a turn for the worse when he did not believe God enough to trust him. And he tried to take matters into his own hands. He was trying to be God. He messed up. And he could have he he gone that route. But what he ended up doing was turning back to God. And sometime later in verse 22, when we know that God later what blessed him with Isaac, and, and uh, we know the rest of the story on that, 90-something years old, having birth to a, a baby boy Isaac. Now that must have been mind-blowing because God finally delivered this promise that he had promised him. And I can't imagine the relief that Abraham must have felt at 90-something years old. It must have been like, my goodness, took you long enough, Right? He probably was more like, thank you, God, for giving me this despite my disobedience. But he ends up believing God because God finally delivered. Or did he deliver? Because we look back in, in Genesis chapter 22 and find a different story. But sometime later after, after he blessed him with Isaac, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the mountain, uh, go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. Now, if I was Abraham, I'd be like, whoa, hold, whoa, 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 hold on a second. You told me, God, that you were going to bless me with descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and now you're telling me to kill the only son that I have. I finally trusted you. You finally blessed me, and now you're fixing to tell me to kill my son? What? That's what I would have said. I think Abraham might have learned his lesson. Because what did Abraham say? Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey and took, him, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. <laughs> Anything strike you as odd about that fifth verse? Huh? Yeah. You think he believed God? <laughs> he didn't understand it all, did he? 
He gets the stuff for the burnt offering. He gets his son. All right, let's go kill you. He's walking off with his son. I'm about to go kill my son here. But y'all be right right there. We'll, We'll be right back. I thought you were going to sacrifice your son. Yeah, I am. But you said, we'll be right back. Yeah, I will. We will. Hang on to that. Abraham, uh, yes, my son. Uh, Abraham took the, uh, the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on, uh, on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went together. Isaac spoke up and said to, the fa- to Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I might cry if I was in this situation. <laughs> I'd be like, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went together. Again, Abraham believed God. I mean, this is trust here. This is trust. When they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. You remember that's what he said the first time whenever God called him to kill his son. And here he is about to do it. Here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there was... There in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns, and he went over, he took the ram and sacrificed it as the burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called this place, the Lord will provide. Is that not belief in God? Is that not trust? He changed the name of this place to the Lord will provide. He believed that the he believed that God would provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, that original promise, and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. You say... Why would Abraham take his son up there and tell them he would be right back when he was going to kill him? Here's why. In Hebrews it says, Abraham, Hebrews eleven nineteen. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. See, Abraham based on what he knew because it had been revealed to him, he knew that God was God and that God could do whatever God wanted to do, including raising his son from the dead. He knew that if he went up there, even if he killed him, he knew God, well, God must, he's going to raise him from the dead then. Why? Because God's not a liar. I believe him. He said he's going to, he said he's going to bless me and I believe it. As a result... <coughs> We are here some several thousand years later 
talking about our father, Abraham. <laughs> I'm like, there's something to be said for taking that type of risk. It's not the existential leap of faith into the unknown, but what it is, it's when we know the promises of God that we are willing to obey the Holy Spirit and stand on that. I'm going to tell you something. That's where fulfillment's at. You want substantial healing? you got to walk the faith that Abraham walked. God wants to show us wonderful things, the things that he has prepared for us. And like in the case of Abraham, it might not have made sense at the time. That's not to say that it was unknowable. And that's not to say that it was illogical. It just means that Abraham didn't have all the facts at the time. But what he did have was an understanding of who God was and the power of God. And he could believe that. Abraham thought at one point that he and Sarah might need to help God out. Maybe God needs our help. But in the end, he believed God for the first, uh, he believed what God said the first time, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then when he was too old, excuse me, then, then when he was told to sacrifice Isaac, he believed again. He reasoned that God could raise Isaac from the dead. So going back to what Paul described again to us of what a sin is, sin is anything that doesn't come from faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, It's written, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, that the things of God has prepared for those who love Him. The things God has prepared for those who love Him. Verse 10, These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. What things? The things that God has prepared for those who love Him. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except for their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not a spirit of the world, but a spirit, who, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This understanding brings us into righteousness. The reason why is because it forces us to see, number one, that we're dead in our sins and completely dependent on God, not only for our salvation, but even for our existence. And number two, by seeing how we play no part in any of this that God has freely given us, we end in thankfulness. We end in thankfulness. So, the next two or three minutes... I want to make a line. I want to draw something up here and show you what we're going to talk about next week because I want to go back to our milk we talked about earlier. I kind of gave you a hint to it right there with what I just read at the end there about the end result of understanding our part in the salvation process and our part in the development of our character and holiness and all that business. Our part... In salvation, it's, we, don't, we don't play a part in it. By understanding that, it forces me to be thankful. This is where faith leads me. So in the past, we've talked about faith in a linear way. When I say linear, I mean it's like a, a, like a line. 
linear. And on one side, we got, uh, let's say, faith. And on this side, let's say we got works. Or maybe legalism or grace. You know, you know what I'm talking about? This kind of this, this, we've talked about this in the church a lot. Um, was that your dad that was here last week? Or who was here last week? Okay. Hey, I haven't read the book yet, but I, I like the title. It said, uh, The Pendulum of Extremes. We talked about that pendulum swinging back and forth. And I love the title. I, don't, I haven't read the book yet. The title looked great. And I had a picture of the Holy Spirit dove. And I think he's going to make the point in the book that, that I'm fixing to make right here. We got this pendulum, and we swing back and forth, right? And, and we say, oh, you know, used to we were way over here on this legalistic side. The, church, the churches of Christ were. It's saved by works. Well, then the grace movement comes along, and we swing way over here to this grace movement. No, I say about faith. And, and then some of the more mature brothers would say, no, 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 no. Guys, it's not in the extreme. It's in the, yeah, you ever heard this, in the middle? You've got to get in the middle. You know, you don't, don't want to be all over here. You don't want to be all over here. Because if you're all over here, then you're like, man, I can do whatever I want. And, I, and, get, and God's grace covers it. We know that's not the answer. And over here, it's like, oh, I've got to do good works to be saved. We know that's not the answer. It's somewhere in the middle. In the middle. Okay? I want you to notice something about this entire system up here. It's, it's linear. There's a word for this. It's humanism. It's humanism. You know why? Because what we're saying is by beginning with ourselves, we can somehow chart on some linear graph of how much faith versus works that we need to do. It's about, it's, it's all, this is all works. If you think about it, right? The more you get to this side, it's less about works, right? This is works. Is this works over here? Yeah. Is this works? Yeah, a little, little less. Is this works? Yeah, a little less. And you keep going down the line, it's works all the way to the end. It's just, it's just a little less, right? What I'm telling you is, is if the gospel rejects this, the gospel is holistic. The gospel says that all things are under the lordship of Christ. And here's why. And here's how the gallon of milk matters. I'm about to get there. This is going to be my whole topic next week. Ultimately, where the Holy Spirit leads the believer is to understanding who Jesus Christ is. That he is Lord. And here's why that matters. Because when I read that passage out of Revelation last a couple weeks ago, and I read it, and I wasn't planning on reading it that night. I just I, you, sometimes you just go off, you know what I mean? I was waiting. I was going to do that uh, next week or last week. And uh, but when I started reading it, I was I just was overcome by the Spirit. And I was looking at some of y'all's faces out there when I got done, and it was like I, you can tell when you hit a home run. And it wasn't me though. I could just y'all were looking at me like. Like at the, it, was just, it was at that moment at the end where it's like, whoa, like what do we do now? Do we clap? Do we, like what do we do? We were all sitting here like, whoa, you just read this incredible like, passage about our, our king. And everyone was just kind of, there was that moment where it was just kind of like, what? And it was that understanding of the king of kings, the lord of lords, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the, the double-edged sword protruding from his mouth, 
the white woolly hair, the fire in the eyes, or the passage in Revelation 19 with the blood. All that. I mean, it's like, and it's like, whoa, that's Jesus. Yeah, and it's and what it forces the believer to to do is, I can't come to that Jesus right there. And say, hey, look at all, look at, look here, here, here's what I, here's what I've done. Give me what I deserve. I've earned my way in. I won't be like John. I'm looking at that. I'm like, whoa. At that moment, I was like, I'm like guilty. Whoa, I give up. Right? That's what you're gonna do. You're not gonna be like, hey, look what I, look at how good I am. I mean, I'm big time. No, no, not in the presence of Jesus. You're not. But you're also not gonna go in there and say, uh, hey, uh, you know, guy with a sword coming out of his mouth. Um, Look, man, can you can you start this this coffee for me real quick with that, with that sword? Put you, put your little sword in there and start that for me. I'm trying to mix that cream up. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll be right back. Let me go sow my wild oats in college. I'll be back. Hold on to that grace right there. Hey, that blood that's that's all over your robe. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back for a little bit of that, but just hold on right there. Are you gonna say that? <laughs> no. Why? Because you're standing before the King of Kings. You see, the opposite of humanism is the Lordship of Christ. That's what the Spirit takes us to. That's where there's a conquering of sin. You know, any issue in the church, you know the answer, you know this, the Lordship of Jesus. You want to wonder sometimes why we don't give money? And I'm preaching at myself here. You know why I don't give money? I don't believe in the Lordship of Jesus. He's not Lord of my money. If I, if I believe in the Lordship of Christ, guess what I'm about to do? I'm about to get off my pocketbook. And I'm going to start tithing. Which is something I've committed to do this year for the first time. I'm not bragging because I ain't never done it. You know, I've given money to the church, but I hadn't, I hadn't done what you're supposed to do. You say, why? He wasn't Lord of that part of my life. What do you look at on TV? Is he Lord of that? How does... How is Jesus Lord of a gallon of milk? Am I grateful for the blessings that God has given me? When I go to buy that gallon of milk and I'm standing at Walmart and I'm like, oh, these lines, I tell you what, get them. You see people get like that. They took my parking place. You know what I mean? Dude, who's Lord of the parking lot? Jesus Christ is Lord of the parking lot. He's Lord of the gallon of milk. He's Lord of what I. He's Lord of my budget. He's the Lord of my marriage. He's Lord of my relationships. He's the Lord of how I talk. He's a. He's Lord of it all. So all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. The Spirit's revealing this to me. It ain't about me anymore. Uh oh. I got to get rid of all that. Let's get rid of this. Let's get rid of that. And let's replace it with this right here. Replace it with the cross. Because when I stand before this and I see the King of Kings slain and then I see that resurrected Lord, the one that appeared to Paul that you talked about earlier, what Paul do when he saw the resurrected Lord? Hit the dirt. What John do when he saw the resurrected Lord on the Isle of Patmos? He hit the dirt. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hit the dirt. I'm going to hit the dirt. And then when he puts his hand on me, just like he did John, he says, don't be afraid. And I look up, and I realize I'm forgiven. You know what my response is? Thankfulness. 
thankfulness. What can I do? What can I do to show you I'm thankful? Not to earn it, but to show you that I'm thankful. This is true spirituality. Let's pray. Father God, we do come to you tonight again, thanking you for our time together, God. I do thank you for the last five weeks and just how you've uh, worked on me, Father. Uh, I know that this every time I do this study on the, on the Holy Spirit, I always find myself in this awkward position, Father, where you convict me to the inner parts of my soul, Father. And it, this has been no exception, Father. And I do thank you for for what you've done in my life through this study in the last five weeks and the transformation that is happening in my own life, God. And uh, I pray, God, for our church. God, I pray that we come to a place of repentance and brokenness, God, that only comes through your Holy Spirit, Father. Father, I pray that we will be a people who don't, explain sin away that we will be a people who confess sin Father to each other to our spouses and ultimately Father to you God I pray that we will not quench the spirit God if if that is going on in our church bodies here in university God I pray that you will just begin to rip that out I pray God you will expose it I pray God you will heal it I pray you will never take our lampstand away God Father, just move. Move in us and on us. God, I pray for those in this room that we will, throughout the week, prepare our minds for what I think is the most incredible message that I, I, I could ever receive, which is that your son Jesus is Lord of all. I pray we will allow that to penetrate our hearts, God, that, that we will, in this body, begin a revival, God that there will be a, a movement of, of you sweeping through our hearts and our lives, cleaning up the sin, restoring us, God, and giving us purpose again. God, I know I speak for me. I repent. And I am sorry for taking your grace lightly. God, help me to, to never do that again. God, help me to love you. Thank you so much for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation by Whitesbury Road Church. For more information, please visit wfrchurch.org.